Welcome to Two Arabs and a Podcast, a show with no limits. Dating, business, martial arts, self-defense, and the life of two Arabs in America. Arabs in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your hosts, the owner of Warrior Academy, the son of an immigrant, international traveler, black rank in Krav Maga, a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and Brazil's national champion, and of course, 2018 self-defense instructor of the year, a bodyguard and military combative instructors, none other than Franz Azar, joined by his co-host, Omar Aswan, the owner of Warrior Tactical Training, Published author, doctor of criminology, world traveler, fluent in four languages, a military combat contractor, and a first-generation immigrant. The show begins now. Welcome to uh, Two Arabs in a Podcast. We're back after a short period of, uh, of time. And a little break. Fellas, how's it going, man? Good, man. How you doing? You're well? Good, good. I want to apologize quick to our crowd. Um, we've been away for a minute. Um, I've went through a lot of personal things. I've been in an accident. Omar, of course, had his shoulder. I think he's jinxing me. He had a, a torn... Uh, what happened to your shoulder? I just looked in it and tore the muscle. It was in training and it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life because it wasn't even... It was... He turned and it popped. i never seen that in my life. <laughs> I was like, how can you do that? So me, I got in a wreck. My father passed away, so there's been a lot of things go. But that being said, with all the negative things that happened, today we are honored to have the man, the one and only, Dan the Beast Severn. And Welcome we're very honored to have him on our show. Dan, today we, uh, I came into Kansas City yesterday. Yes. Yeah. yeah late, <laughs> late last night. Late last night, I got a 12 a.m. phone call, and I was snoozing like an old man. <laughs> but uh, Dan came in and rocked a, a seminar uh, today, of course. Omar had the pleasure to train since he's healthy now, and I'm not. I'm just sitting there watching. And Dan, welcome, and this is an honor for us. Thank you well, thank so much you. for being well, here. Omar, I hope you like the, the different types of concepts and techniques, because I, I, I just want, I actually want athletes to become more and more independent, take a little bit more control of their own careers, because if you sit on a weight, a coach can only get to so many different athletes, mm -hmm. but then the coach also has his own families <laughs> like that to take care of. So, it's it's hard to understand every individual athlete's their pros their cons to them. I mean, as is, if you actually saw some of the notes I have in, in my database upon each individual athlete, I put down lots of notes. Are they married? Are they single? Are they single with a child? Are they this that? I mean, because all of these things play a factor. Of course. And how much they could concentrate on trading. Or I not. mean, today we have an amazing mix. You know, the academy where we have you know have some guys that just do self defense. We have uh, people like Jen Case, you know, my good friend, she was there, you know, she was, uh, and the funny part, you're going to talk to her, Jen Case, she was there, she's um, a multi-time world champion, black belt in jiu-jitsu, and a black belt, and in judo, she's very successful, but she, in 2006, she was one of the first ladies that went in an MMA fight, you were commentating on her fight, believe it or not. Wow, well, see that, and I don't even remember it, but, but again, life has been kind of a blur. But, yeah, uh, and she was like so excited. She's one of my good friends, and I consider her a mentor to me too. And other things, how we train with each other. But it just for me to tell, she told me she was like, "I don't think he knows me. He was a commentator on my first MMA fights." And well, again, what I was watching was again, watching the, the way that the ladies were, were doing mm -hmm. what kind of techniques. And again, everyone has a little bit different type of athletic build to where yes. 
they're going to do a, just a little slight different little twist with things. And she she likes some, some of the techniques that go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she's evil. <laughs> Jen, you're going to be happy about this one. You're evil. <laughs> I love her. She's, she's a great name. But, yeah, she was so excited today. And... You kind of do it like this. <laughs> Not very evil. Yeah. So here's a – I'm going to share this with our crowd. Uh, of course, we have a crowd multi-mix. Our crowd is basically – you know, this podcast called Two Arabs on Podcast, and we talk political and how to be a man. I mean, we're a fans of Dan and Don, <laughs> toxic masculinity. Two guys that still relate to being men. Okay. So we are kind of the other cultural version of it. <laughs> Let me put it that way. But um, a lot of our guests, you know, our fans around here, when they watch us, a lot of them, you know, some of them are fans. Some of them never been fans of the fight game. We bring a lot of different people. So... I want to tell my crowd, and I told Omar, and I will say this to you. I remember when uh, coming in to just knowing that me and you have been talking, and I was like so excited. And I, I tell my students, and they just cannot figure, especially the young ones. I was like, I was 14 years old, living in the Middle East. Now, let me explain this to you. And knowing about Dan Severin, the pro wrestler first. You know, so wow. we used, yeah, the pro wrestler. That's how I'm a pro wrestling fan before it became MMA because I, your generation is what brought MMA, to be honest with you. And, and, I mean, let's say MMA to the broader uh, world. It was there. Well, but yeah, it, 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 started, it started from that 1992 period where it went from, excuse me, yeah, no, 90, 90, actually, December 1993 was the very first UFC number one, but so close to 94, I always say for 94 on. My first professional was professional since of 1992, 1994, jumped to the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But it was known as NHB, which stood for No Holes Barred, mm. and to educate the, the people that watch it today. The product that you watch today with known as MMA, mixed martial arts, that has approximately 47 to 49 rules. But yep. back then, it had two rules, no biting, no eye gouging, into the rules, no weight classes, and that, that's where you had the biggest weight difference. You had uh, just over 400 pounds when you had Excuse me, Keith Hackney going up against Manny Yarborough, just the sumo. There was a four pound weight difference. And no time to say one ultimate victory. They wanted to see that someone that was either going to be unconscious, whether that was being choked out or knocked out. Your corner could not, your corner could actually throw the towel in. If they felt that you were not reacting in a rational manner, they could throw the towel in. Other than that, uh, I think uh, they, they did not even have doctor stoppage, no referee stoppage at that point. And that was my first. Two or three UFCs, and then when, when they brought Big John McCarthy on, Big John said, he goes, I'm right there. I'm right there watching it. He goes, I have to have the ability to stop the matches, and that was probably one of the very first rules I got oh. in was that stoppages of matches. So, again, little history for yeah. the fans that watch it because most people, they, they see the current product, MMA. Yes, it's a very it's a very aggressive, it's a very shocky type value, but... When you look at that MMA and you look at the NHB, if you saw them side by side each other, you're like, going, oh, this NHB stuff, what a wild, wild west mm -hmm. shootout this Absolutely. was. Absolutely. And I noticed you were, sorry to cut you yeah. off, I noticed you were having multiple matches in the same day because you were showing up more sweaty and more sweaty yeah. throughout the day. So it, you were having multiple matches. It, that became a trademark. Yeah. Yeah. It's a well, sweaty yeah. gray shirt. Well, there's a, there's a good story there. But, but yeah, to, get to fans, these were not just individual bouts. Like today... It has grown into just individual bouts on a, a bout card. Whereas back back then, uh, the NHB, there was an eight-man tournament because the ladies were not competing at that point. So an eight-man tournament, you had to fight three times in the same two-hour pay-per-view that stills 
still prevails today. Where you just do one match on a card. And it, it, the, the product has streamlined. The match could be done quite quickly. The average match during the NHB trade time frame was two minutes and 22 seconds. A very yeah. violent two minutes and 22 seconds, but they have a two hour pay per view. So if these matches go too quickly, they had no backup footage of you traded earlier, or here are some some uh, questions that were asked you about a, from a previous interview about your post stuff like that. Today's UFC product, they're they're a well-oiled machine. They have all kinds of stuff in the can. So if a match goes short, they could go into interview after view, interview, show yeah. all kinds of highlights and things of that nature. You know, Those options were not available at that time. Right, right. See, to me, when I'll tell everybody the story, and today I shared it with my students, and <laughs> it's funny looking at my students' faces, listening to this, they got a little bit, I think, confused by that. So, I was 14 years old, and I'm not saying this to get a dig at Dad's age. All <laughs> respect right here. He made a comment about it. Way <laughs> and I do not. But I would never forget the day. My friends called me. This is this the thing this story. So they were like, hey man, do you know that Dan Severn? I was like, yeah, what about Dan? I'm thinking NWA, nothing related to this. So I was just a judo slash Muay Thai guy. Just think about that concept. Nothing related to anything. I mean, even, but just never combined this stuff. Okay. It was so separate if you think about it. And they're like, yeah, man, that training you do. And I was like, what is that training I do? I was like, what are you guys talking about? Because we're talking about Dan Severin. You know, I'm thinking, okay, well, who's he, what match we got? Man, he's going for this thing. It's called Ultimate Fighting. I'm like, okay, what is that? He's going to fight people in some cage. And I'm like, and it's a tournament. And so think about it. We live down there. So we get shit 24 hours late. Uh-huh. Okay? Because we get it on VHS. Even when we live on the bases, you know how it is the life yeah. there. So I get my American military friends up telling me about it. It's like, yeah, man. I was you like, mean, you guys didn't have the black box. <laughs> <laughs> Most people had the black box, so they're like, yeah, sorry about that. We cut it to pay the go, Dude, I wasn't getting any of that money from that from the black box. <laughs> you can take black boxes all day long or gear less. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like thinking, it's 2 a.m. The finally the VHS arrives. I'm that phone, and I'm sitting here. Have no clue what am I gonna watch. So I see you coming, and I got confused. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> this is my introduction to NHB, Ultimate Fighting, okay. MMA. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh Jesus, Dan is fighting. <laughs> I'm like, Dan is fighting, you know what I'm saying? You know, pro wrestling at that time still had, we don't know what pro wrestling is. Well, well if you can ask me a few questions. I, I know, but. Professional wrestling has always had a Predetermined outcome. Yes, yes. Now, but I'm talking about my time as a 14 years old. Oh no, you (laughs) because you had people were so good at their craft. Yes, that most people did not know. What starts making look a little more hokey pokey is when I grab you with my two fingers, grab you by the wrist, and all of a sudden I throw you across the Mm -hmm. room with two fingers on your wrist. And you, but you never did bounce that, off. Well, again, I wouldn't do nothing like That's that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You were like different. I, I tried to stay true yes, to an actual amateur wrestler and, and a combatant. That background. what had me as a fan, to oh, be honest. Okay. See, that's what I'm saying. That's why when I was a fan, I was like, I used to tell these guys, you know, they were talking about the Hulkster and all that. I was like, 
I used to be a dance every guy because I'm like, I don't see him doing any of this shit. I didn't see him, you know, I didn't see the hulking up or because it got corny in a time. So the attitude oh. era, which we will talk about later. So you are in the attitude era. I kind of got a little bit serious down there a little bit. Well, but so I watched that tape and I'm sitting here in shock watching and it, I don't it was a conflicted emotion like holy cow this is the best shit I ever seen but I was like my god Dance Everett is a beast <laughs> so that was my fan moment and I'm sitting with a bunch of us you should see it as there were some military guys here us kids 2 a.m. in the morning 40 years old watching this on VHS and I know to the fans I don't think you know what VHS is. <laughs> no, we're not WikiLeaks. Yeah. But but even but but uh, NHB, U, UFC, all of this stuff has influenced so many first responders. It has affected military. It has affected a law enforcement corrections because they realize matches could be on, conducted on their feet, but they also could, could be conducted down underground. And so, yeah, since that time, I've been introduced to a lot of different. Uh, instructors that are like, do you think you could help us? I've been brought in as a subject expert in different things, but I would simply say, well, yeah, it's easy to move if you're wearing just a pair of shorts and t-shirts. Put me in your gear. Put me uh, in a military outfit with the boots. Put me the rucksack on my back. Put the weapon on me. Put me in the actual equipment that you would normally have in. Now let me see how I can actually move and I can make adjustments. And they're actually, they're blown away how quick I can show them, even if, if, if the way that the weapon is strapped in place, how to use this weapon in ways that they had never thought before. But it's kind of like what I did in even today's seminar. Yes. I want to simply, it's like, I'm, I'm John, I always I always relate to, I'm John the Appleseed. I'm just planting some seeds so that people can, they'll start to change the way that they're thinking. But what it, what it opens up is go, well, if, if, if Dan can make different things work like this, why can't I? And that's all I want you to do is, Yes, you can. Hmm. Question thing because we live, I mean, and I can use that in even even in the political realm. Okay. You better start questioning things a whole See, lot and I, more. And I told Philas in the first part of the seminar, and I told yes. him that I made a comment. I said usually coaches show up in seminars. We attended many seminars, yeah. and usually the average coach and the average guy throwing a seminar is this is my way, this is the highway. You're gonna listen to me. Don't question shit. This is exactly what we're gonna do. And I said I like your style. Because you're basically saying, this is why we're doing it. I'm going to explain the logic behind it. And you should question it to well, prove it yourself. I'm yes. also going to take like it one that. step. I don't mean to cut you off, but here's what he said. <laughs> He's being nice. I'm throwing that part out. <laughs> I'm not going to read the name of the person. But flat out, he said, he said this. And I said, like, he said, this man is a legit, bona fide world champ in everything he touched. You know right? Thank you. And uh, he, this is his word. Yeah. If I'm wrong, no, right. stop me. But he said, we brought, I brought a lot of people. There's amazing instructors we brought. Every now and then the self-defense realm is quirky because you know how they are. They never fought. So like we, you, we yeah. talked about that. But they come in, they think, this is me. I am the burning bush. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But he said, and even Rolf came to me, which one of my students for 12 years, and came to me and all of them said, they're like, this is the man. This is the beast. And he said in front of us and he said, here's what it looks like. But here's the other avenues and what shape, what sizes, what that. You are li literally, and, and this is off subject, and I, you know, I don't want to say, but what you brought today is really, uh, to me, most, as a teacher, as a martial arts teacher, as a self-defense inst instructor as well, and I'm passionate about fighting and all that. 
The fact that you can sit and break it down the way you break it, put the time, is just mind-blowing everybody because you take a lot of time and pride in what you teach, but you don't sit, this is the Dan Severn way. Yeah. You, and, and, and that's right. That's what caught yeah. your attention. And you literally said, from how old is Rex? Not even... Yeah, like five, I mean, we got all the young ages came into the adults and they're saying, literally, you went one by one and made it to the point that the technique worked for them. Yes. In quick, quick, tweaks because we're not all created equally. I think. Some are tall, some are short, some are thick, some are thin, some have some no legs. necks, some have no <laughs> necks. I mean, but again, but that both I get being involved in the sport of amateur wrestling. My first my first love, amateur wrestling. Mm-hmm. I've had lots of coaches. Most of these coaches were usually when they were in their competition days, they would have been that hundred twenty five pounder up to about probably 165 pounder at the heaviest. And they're trying to, they're, they're like trying to make, every, turn everyone else into a mini bee. Yes. Or they're trying to show this heavyweight who is six foot eight and weighs 325 pounds how to do a high crotch barbecue. Heavyweights are not built like that. They have to do something totally different. And I, I look at it even at lighter weight classes 150 pounds can come packaged all different way. It could be tall, like a rail, and short and thin, like a, like a little, or, or short and pudgy, like a little uh, fire hydrant. Everything falls somewhere in between. So I'm always trying to teach to the body type, who's got longer arms, shorter arms. But I'm, I'm really big about that. But I also, I do want to question things because one size fits all is not going to work. Yeah. To that time, I mean, this is a big thing. I mean, when I used to compete, I was a 155er. No, I'm not. <laughs> so nobody gets on my case. <laughs> um, me and Dan were joking about the scale. I touched the scale and I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> the scale makes or breaks most people. Oh, man. And when you said that, I laughed. I mean, I grew up on Juno because the weight cut was terrible. Wrestling is the worst weight cut out of all. And when I did Jiu-Jitsu weight cut, it wasn't as bad. Uh, luckily, I got a good coach, Ethan Bindon. He helps me with that. But uh, ju- wrestling was my disaster. When I hear weight cut, I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> Like, even my MMA, when we deal with the MMA fighters, I hear a weight cut. Yeah, nope. I ain't judging. Well, just, just to hold you right there, in high school, I played football, and I weighed right around two and a quarter. But when I wrestled, I wrestled at 185. Oof. So even in high school, by my junior senior What was your height? I was still worried about that, just six one to six two range. I'd say I stayed that range until more recently. As I get older, now I'm starting to shrink. So I was just, <laughs> I'm basically six one maybe yeah. at best. Yeah, with a good shoe day. Yeah. So no. going back to your days, you started. So did you start with wrestling or did you start with football? How did you make that transition? Oh, again, just being just being a kid growing up, I liked being involved in athletics altogether. I mean, I played baseball. I did soccer. Uh, I, Physical education used to be actually physical education in our school system. Yes. They don't do that now, nowadays. Um, so, but by the high school, there was, I, I played three, three sports a year. There was football, there was wrestling, and there was track and field. Mm-hmm. I loved football more than I did wrestling. Mm-hmm. The hard part of how I, when I eventually put my, all my eggs in my basket, I played football all four years. I had actually a number of football scholarships to go on to college to play football. The head football coach at Arizona State, he used to come and watch me at some of the home uh, dual meets for wrestling. He's like, Severn, you're an animal. I see linebacker written all over. I go, coach, 
you got me pegged. I go, I'd rip my heart up and I'd give it to you. I go, but do you have 10 other men that will do the same thing? So in my high school career, you know, it takes a, you got 11 people that's on the field for football. You can do everything within your parameter, tackle, block, whatever, yeah. but if you have someone that lets down, yeah. gives up that tackle, gives up that block, and you lose because of somebody else. That's why I chose the sport of wrestling. The definition of wrestling is a team sport based upon individual competition. The yeah. team can lose, and I can still win. Yes. So that's why I, I, I chose wrestling as my independent sport to to go out to college, but then also it was it was my avenue to go to college on a full athletic scholarship. So how did you balance all that? How do you balance all the athletic and, and studying and, and I don't being think, a still a high school kid? I, I don't think there really is ever a true balance. Even now, at late, late, later in life, I still don't have that balance. It's kind of like I'm, I'm like... I'm spending more, too much time over here, and then all of a sudden... Like we talked about, stuff. in the car. Yeah. I mean, your life is... In, you're, you're traveling yeah. office is the car. I mean, today yeah. we I mean, were talking yeah. about, right? Again, even if you look at... Yeah. Okay, you know, t- today I'm a 63-year-old guy, and I'm still... Well, it was 11 hours to drive here. Yeah. So I, I, I left uh, uh, Howell, Michigan, I think, uh, yesterday. I forget what time. I ended up leaving there. I had to drive to Coldwater, simply just to unload stuff, to repack stuff, and then leave there and drive... Knowing that it was going to be sometime after midnight by the yep. time I'd be getting in. How many people are going to do that knowing that they'll be up the following morning, rise or shine, teach on a mat? Did that pro wrestling, the pro wrestling life did accommodate you to this? Because pro wrestlers travel a lot like crazy. No, they do, but because professional wrestlers, they mostly perform later in the evening. So they might drive to the night knowing that they're going to sleep part of the, the day away. Okay. They're still going to do some type of training usually because... Uh, professional wrestling is very, uh, very visual. They they want to see these monsters. They're yeah. not going out there to see ninety eight pound weaklings that don't. Look oh like no! They, they, yeah, yeah. They, Unfortunately, they to, as much as they try, it's not working. Yeah. They want to see these bastards that go like, "Listen here, But you were not problem. one of those. You no, see, no, this, but, the, this the thing, though. You you were that silent killer. But again, I came in as a different type of character. It was I'm still a character, but somewhat different. Mine was still the, the same portrayal of what I was portraying in the Ultimate Fighting Chips. I mm-hmm. wore the exact same outfit, a sweaty T-shirt. Uh, that's what I told Omar. I was educating him. You know, there was an age difference here. But Omar, you know, he's a... He's been a MMA fan, but I got him into pro wrestling because I'm a fan of it. Yeah. You know, like I said, how it started. But speaking of that, so let's take it down. So... I want to take a top notch back if we don't jump around a lot if we got questions. But when you entered the U.S. Ultimate Fighting uh, Championship, yeah. right? They didn't make it that easy for you because it looked like you as a pro wrestler. Isn't that was the issue situation going on or what happened, right? Because I was talking to you about it. I don't know. They were like, you know, coming in. Well, what I, I what I had done was uh, I, my UFC four was just my first entry into the place. And from USC 4, I only had five days to prepare. Mm-hmm. And so I did a five-day training camp. An hour and a half a day, I simply would leave Coldwater, Michigan. I would travel over to Lima, Ohio, uh, to Al Snow's uh, Body Slammer's gym at the time. And because you know, a professional ring was the closest thing that could come to a cage. You got you to go back in time to realize that you could go... At the time the USC was forming... 
There was only one cage, and it was owned by the UFC. Yeah. Fast forward to today, you can go to a lot of different communities, and you might find, find a full-size cage or second sections of cage. Yeah. And, 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 and instructors will say, well, we teach, you know, cage walk tactics and all kinds of other stuff. And I kind of just kind of smile and go, eh, most of these people can't spell MMA, let alone even do it. <laughs> but everyone I, puts I, the problem. sometimes goes so, to this thing. I'm sorry, but anyway, let's get yeah. out. But, but no, I, I mean, I... I uh, I just looked at at, at uh, you know my op- opportunity to get in, into this event. It came about, you know. So uh, UFC number four w- was my very first one. I was there for for an hour and a half a day, uh, for five days, and I was it. So I get what you. Well, so so the thing is, to me, what I was interested in, then I I mean everybody came in with their martial arts background. Yes. And you walked in. Oh, they knew you were the pro wrestler. You know, you know that stand when you stand. You did that, yeah. that you know that type of thing. You know how to rock different than anybody, and you understand that's not when you start involved in pro wrestling. You know how to rock the crowd. So the, the you, you want to get the crowd behind it. Yes. Because it, it, again, typically in professionals, you have two characters: either the heel, the bad guy, or the baby face, the good guy. Yeah. And for the good guys, you want cheers, applause, that kind of stuff. Bad guys hey. in the booths. <laughs> exactly. Bad guy, you want booze, hisses, as. But you walked in a different but, territory. But, but even, but there's there's a psychological oh, aspect to me. That's, that's what where, you were introduced today in your so, seminar. Exactly. When you walk out like a professional wrestling, as they start to play your music alone. Yeah, that face, the look. You, you start to go, and then the moment that you walk to that curtain, whatever you're wearing, your posture, how you're carrying yourself to that mm-hmm. ring. Are you stopping along the way to, to interact with fans? As, as, you know, the baby face might be doing the high fives. Hey, cheer for me. All this kind of stuff. You just so, walked in, man. <laughs> the heel, you kind of walk in and just look at people like you're just, mm-hmm. you're, you're wasting my time. Get, you know, but there's just different ways. But I was, I, I went out there as I had a deadpan face. Yes. I was serious. I'm here on a mission. I don't care if all these people are here. But that's what, how I, you I, were as a pro wrestler, though. That's what I'm saying. It is. You did not change. I remember sitting and watching. I'm like, as people were talking around me, they're all excited about Some of them didn't even know you. It was exactly. me and a few guys that was watching this during that 2 a.m. watching this. And I'm sitting here, I was like, but that's Dan Severed. <laughs> me, at 14 years yeah. old, used to seeing you perform. And I'm like sitting here and I'm watching. Everybody's like, all right. But, so, but I, what? But, but I wanted to stay true to me. I did. I did not want to diminish what I had done throughout my career. I, I, I was proud of what I did as an amateur wrestler. Yeah. I was proud of what I did to my cage fighting career. So this was a carryover. I got to wear the same uniform. I, I luckily was uh, matched up with uh, Jim Cornette. He mm-hmm. would break out different belts, and he actually was my mouthpiece. He know Jim Doobie. He knew that oh, I was. Oh, he speaks not, highly of yeah, you to this day. Yeah, he knows yep. that I am not going to cut a cut a crazy promo. Yep, I don't have to. He just knows that he'll do all that for me, mm-hmm. and all I got to do is go out there and break somebody. Mm-hmm. That's all. But I, I was actually like probably. 20 years before a Bill Goldberg came along. Oh, oh, oh my God, I was going to get to that. You just jumped to that. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. No, no, no. But almost 30 years before Brock Lesnar yes. came along. So let me take a step back before we jump to that point, okay. if you don't mind. So here's what we, I was going to say. So thinking about that moment, um, when you, that time you walked in, Dan Severn is coming in, the ultimate fighter championship. People looked at you. I was like, 
Hey, this is a pro wrestler. That was kind of the presumption yeah. going on. You have pulled off the belly-to-back suplex, which is belly-to-back suplex that you guys see Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle do now, by the way. Well, they also called the German. The suplex. German suplex, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah. You have pulled it off in a legit fight. Multiple times. <laughs> Multiple times. You'll see it come Which times, is but, but now, yeah. by the way, Brock Lesnar 2021 doesn't. Let's be honest. Uh, I mean, two things. I, I'm going to crush them all together. So let me let me say this. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb, and I've said this, and I don't care what people feel. If it wasn't, this is a compliment, but it's an honest to God compliment. And maybe you've heard it, but this is me. And I've said it to my 17-year-old son when I was talking about him, showing it to him. If it wasn't for Dan Severn, I do not believe we would have had the Bill Goldbergs. I do not believe we had the Brock Lesnar's in pro wrestling. That image, because you did the opposite. They did the pro wrestling and, you know, Bill, yeah. oh my God, this, they had the feel of the MMA fighter and then Brock went to UFC. Yeah. But I do believe you have paved the way to that kind of intensity, that kind of character yeah, sure. in pro wrestling by itself. And that multiple German suplex, you have pulled it off in a legit combat, combative fight. And the, the, the real aspect of that, mm -hmm. that was my very first match ever. So I say that <laughs> we making go. a first impression, it's always a good thing. I made a very good impression. It, yeah. it, it, I mean, when I put that video when I was advertising and people watching it, they start, start go. I mean, like Little Rex. When he was talking to you about watching it, he is dumbfounded to the fact that there's a German suplex coming pulled off like that. I was like, be careful, don't pull that off in a jiu-jitsu tournament, please. <laughs> well, actually, the gentleman I pulled that off with, his name is Anthony Basias. And since that time, I've gotten to know Anthony Basias. He's a former amateur wrestler himself. He's a referee for mixed martial arts. He has a son that's a wrestler. And I've actually, I, I told Anthony, go, please send me some of your son's matches. And I gave him back critiques. Mm -hmm. Have you said work on this? Have him work on that? Because what we talked about earlier, as good of a competitor as I was, I'm actually a much better coach. Yeah. So let's go back to the UFC. Okay. So you're transitioning from pro wrestling to UFC. But yeah. one of the things that struck me, you never signed a contract of exclusivity with UFC. So, and you kept your wrestling belts while you still walked with it. We were so, and, and, and you're new to the FC. So let's go back to the time. Not now. You're new to the FC. So you're walking in. You don't have any track record in the UFC. Correct. You're not really very well known. And you're the first wrestler essentially to walk into UFC. How could you pull it off? How could you convince them to let you do what you want to do? And not sign your life away. So I mean, literally well, walking off with the NWA championship belt. What? Then an organization that has their own championship exactly. belt. And they looked down on pro wrestling. Let's be honest. They, they did. Well, They're like, ah, oh, that fake they, stuff. The UFC wanted nothing to do with professionals because they were, were the real deal. We're yes. not professional. And that's how they build it. We exactly. are the real deal. It was just, it's kind of like, you know, Mel Gibson's Thunderdome. To be an intern. <laughs> One man leaves, you know. So how do you convince them? Well, I mean, it was just, uh, I, I had a, a good attorney with me at the point in time. And I basically, he was able, he, he's a good negotiator, and he actually did all that for me. I said, this is what I want. Yeah. I, I, again, I only ever planned on doing just a couple UFCs. The first time, I just, my first time, I told that single family member, I just wanted to go out there and test my skills. Can I get to that person before they get to me? And so I, I became the runner-up in UFC number four, and it's kind of, with only traded five days, I thought, well, 
take a second, kind of sucks. Let's, uh, I get to come back. So when you see number five, it's got to go, okay, I'll take out 32 days of my life. I'll block it out. I'm going to leave my family behind. I'm going to go out to Arizona. I'm going to trade. I mean, I stayed by myself. I stopped myself. I ate by myself. And I, I, the, a lot of the things that I was trading, it was by myself. I had, you know, throwing dummies. I had a wall-mounted uh, dummy. And I had a spring-loaded dummy. That these were my three most reliable workout partners. But I did also work with wrestlers and submission grab people. I actually stayed at Grand Canyon University. One of my friends that found out I was there, he, he called me up. And he says, you need to come beat this guy. Mm. Who actually teach? Who was teaching at a NHB type class at a university? But he's trying to teach him about the business course and stuff like that, so that if you're going to run a martial arts school, you know how to stay, you know, yeah. how to run the books, how to do collections, the things of that nature. So I went over there. He basically fell in love with it, and it basically had it set up to where I was actually staying at Grand Canyon University. So now I have just like a little uh, think of a student type of apartment. But it was like very Spartan. I had a black and white television. Most people don't know you know black and white television. <laughs> on a crate. Yeah. And I had, I think, three USC VHS tapes. And that was all I watched. Watching just those three tapes. Well, and you, you mentioned that in the seminar. Back in the day, you didn't have these phones to Google your oh. your opponent. I mean, we even I was laughing. I looked at Jen Case. And I was like, I leaned to her like this. I'm like, it's terrible that to admit that these days... We even Google who we're gonna go against in a grappling match. Yeah. Oh, you do, and you can find, you can see footage, mm -hmm. and you can, you can learn all yeah. about it. But, but, it's, but that's all part of. I'm a big advocate of education. The more that you can know about your opponent, the more ways you should be able to come up with, with ways to throw them off their game, whether it's psychological or you realize, okay, they're really good at this. Stay away from this and attack other weak type areas. So again. The Google type aspect, you know, that's there now. Even as I said earlier, how many competitors, whether it be male or female, could walk into a Friday night press conference? Mm -hmm. There wasn't a way in because there was no weight class. So you could easily be, you know, anywhere that that's sitting around that, that 180 to 220 pound range, but also now you got this 350 pound monster over here. Yeah, that does that go? Oh my God, you know. And, and, but you're you're meeting these seven other competitors the night before at a press conference because there's no way. But we're at this Friday night event. All eight men show up because again, ladies weren't competing yet at that time. You have a uh, commentator there that, that that's mediator that, that's actually. Uh, prevalent uh, over the whole event. Uh, contestant number one, uh, Ken Sharman, please stand on up. And then we'll go through his height, his weight, his what his background is, and then he'll sit right down. And then contestant number two, Hoist Gracie, please stand up. They go through. So they just basically talk about the eight different people. So literally, as you're up there, you're, for the first time ever, you're learning about the seven other competitors. Then they pull out a bingo ball machine. It has eight balls in there that have names of either Ken Shamrock, Hoist Gracie, Dance, or whatever. They spin around, pop one out, out boom, Hoist Gracie. Spin around, right in, boom, Ken Shamrock, match number one. So less than 24 hours before you're about to step in the cage and compete against them in a no-holes-barred match that you found out. And at that time, I can't grab my cell phone. I can't, hey, Siri, and all of a sudden find out who Hoist Gracie is. What does he do? What's his martial art? You can do that today, but back then you had nothing to work with. 
Oh, uh, Siri picked up. <laughs> she did. She did. Which is funny because, you know, even in some legal court cases now, there's been arguments amongst people. Things went really sour, but when they go back, they looked it through the records of series and they came up with incriminating evidence. Yes. Well, we were two Middle Easterns. God help us. Yeah. The things we said. So, <laughs> probably that much further than what this, this old boy has said. So, so, do you think, based on the UFC today versus the UFC back then, do you think the UFC is basically watering down to sell more tickets, or do you think it's going in the right direction to encourage more fans to attend, or do you think it's just you know it doesn't it wouldn't sell in today's age what's what's happening you know back in your day? Yeah. Collaboration of several things. First off, the onslaught attack from politicians, oh, oh legislators, yep. athletic commissioners tried, first off, to do away with this barbaric sport inside of a cage. Because I mean, no, no other sport, other than if you start going back to the, your gladiator days of uh, where the, where the uh, gladiator would have to go out there and fight uh, to the death in some type of Coliseum match, which, you know... I see where that could actually be brought back, but it's for a different type. Different <laughs> hey, not in this country at the moment. I'm just going to throw it out there. Well, get, get it. get enough hate comments. <laughs> <laughs> we meet him already. We got blocked so many times or stuff like this, so yeah, we can uh, yeah. <laughs> We'll have some discussions afterwards. <laughs> we, we, oh, might, we might want to be the first promoters to actually implement some of these. Hey, there we go. There we go. Let's try mine that quick. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, so here's the thing. Okay, so that time, in the period of time, UFC as you transitioned, as, as things are uh, uh, growing and you winning, UFC 5, you nailed it. Yeah. You yeah. became, improved it. Hey, I asked a question today in front of my students and I said, eh, I'm going to look at the podcast, but I'll bring it up because it was an iconic picture and I would never forget. And then it ended up in the Hoist Crazy documentary. I'm like, eh. I'm going to ask the man himself. Oh, yeah. Because I'm a fan of the Beast before I'm a fan of the Gracie Sam Jiu-Jitsu. And to be honest with you, I don't care what people's feeling is. This is about in this uh, podcast. I've learned when I moved to Brazil, I mean, lived in a moment there, um, trained by them, to be honest with you. That's, well, Gi Jiu-Jitsu. That's how I learned. It was in Brazil. Yeah. In 2009, I, moved, I stayed there and Frega de Gunisi was my first uh, Jiu-Jitsu coach. And he kind of... I was just being the American that saw the jiu-jitsu here, and it was Haley and the Gracie family. And I would never forget, forget, he was like, calm down, we'll talk about jiu-jitsu, put that to the side. <laughs> I'm like, and my head turned like my English bulldog I got to the side. I'm like, eh, <laughs> like I could, you know better than I do, but you were that generation. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> okay, so he broke it down. I'm not gonna get into details, but is it, this is jiu-jitsu. Put that to the side. So, going forward, I would never forget the time when you were, let's be honest, you were beating the bejesus of voice at that mm-hmm. time. You had an eye-to-eye contact with Healy, Gracie. Yeah, I was at Hoist's guard. Uh-huh. I just take a look over. Exactly. Yes. He looked at you and he was doing this. It was a notorious picture. And I couldn't, I was looking at video and I go back to the footage, even though on YouTube, it's like, did Dad say something? Because I saw you looking at it. Well, but I don't know if it was verbal or it was just a visual. At the time, his arms were down. And as I look over at him, I think myself, because I, I was being kind to this match. 
even though the word does look like a big guy. I, you know, I, in my opinion, you were not, but okay. <laughs> well, but, but even when I'm watching it. But if you look at the history, the previous two people that I went up against, I never threw any strokes. I, I just did all just amateurism techniques too. And until just, you met him, though. Yeah. Until the third match. Yep. And now I realize, again, you have to realize I only trained for five days, an hour and a half a day. I'm not from a fighting background, I'm a competitor. At amateur wrestling, who teaches principles of leverage. I mean, we had one of our young yes. students today, little Rex. I asked him, it was like, Peter Vasilio throw a, a fist until you yeah. win against you know, he, he actually he asked an excellent question. And I go, it wasn't until several minutes into this match that what stuff I was attempting were, was not working that well. And I, th and I think myself, I think I'm going to have to hit this guy. Okay. And I always tell people that I was I was more torn with struggle with my conscience than I ever was with a human being. And then, you know, probably somewhere at that point, I was kind of going, as I'm down inside his guard, I'm basically going, well, boom, I, I'll hit like one palm shot, boom, on the side, okay. Well, I get nice, nice little thump right there, but it's kind of like it gets his attention, rattles the cage a little bit. Well, maybe that hurt a little bit. Well, okay. He doesn't seem to didn't respond too much. Well, maybe we'll we'll pop we'll pop this a little bit more yeah. on, on this side, to where. You know. That there was that point that where, I look up over at Helio at yes. that point, and I'm looking at him, and I think to myself, I go. You kill your kid out here right now. You had a for, 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 I mean, uh, it was there no, no. for a brief moment. It uh, was there's an iconic picture there, of footage of you. Literally looking at him, a horse is under yeah. you, and you looked at the old and, man. And he has a towel in his hand, and as he, as he looks at me, he brings that towel right up in there, puts it up his, and just crosses his arm, and just shakes his head, no. And I'm thinking, you old bastard. You'd let me kill your kid out here, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of like, I know what I did uh, in my heart, and uh, I, can I live with it? Sure, I can live with it. But there was a reason in my final... Uh, five years of competition, I was trying for one more match right in a row. If I could have one more match with a Mark Coleman, a Ken Shamrock, a Hoist Gracie right in a row. I mean, for, uh, for different reasons that I You've said it on the people. record, and I do agree. It was that match we haven't seen Hoist Gracie until five years later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's a, well, it disappeared, yeah. But you have to look at Art Davey and Hoist Gracie were the two people that were headed up the very first Ultimate Fighting Championship. It was Art Davey who was the businessman and the, the brainchild of the Ultimate Fighting Championships. He had different uh, concepts of what this cage should be designed like. I mean, there were some really crazy ideas that they had with it. But you got to realize that Art Davey was merely a businessman. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to simply pit two men against each other and in a unregulated type of a martial arts contest where they could any kind of strike, any kind of grappling technique, any... Boxer versus sumo versus karate. So it was just to see what style and or individual is going to reign supreme. To be honest, and I've said this to my students, um, as much as I'm a self-defense instructor, like I said, my background is graphic. From judo to wrestling, jitsu is my passion. And like I said, I don't teach as much. I implement it in my self-defense because I tell people, you got to go to the fucking ground. Don't kid yourself. Mm -hmm. You've teached... Military, I mean, if you've taught um, the police and all that, so you understand that. But I do believe it was that tournament 
even though whatever the outcome of that UFC 4, but then UFC 5, you've reigned supreme, I do believe that's when it showed the world, UFC 4, UFC 5, grappling is king. Well, Correct well, me if I'm wrong. Well, well, good. UFC 4, highly trade for five days. No, no, I get it. And I walked it's, into the, and I showed what a, just an amateur wrestler can do. That's, that's speaks highly yeah. high and, vo volumes yeah. to what I'm saying. No, so it is. And, and even fast forward to today, I could still take that high level wrestler. And if they just are with me for the next 20 to 30 days, I could teach them concepts that again, I know how to relate to them to where they would do very well now. There's some things that are still not being explored by a lot of these athletes. I've got notes in my, my, my journals. Of like Evidence today about. what you did in the seminar. The concept today you did just pinning someone to the wall or the cage. Yeah. You've said today I had my fighters looking at me. I'm like, I just did this. Yeah. We did, but then I talked about different matches because you know, I brought up one scenario of Conor McGregor versus Cowboy Cerrone. And being in the clinch position and then Conor McGregor come back and punch you with that yep. shoulder. And the night that I know happened. everybody calls it a Conor McGregor shoulder thing. I was like, no, that's been yeah. that's been there. My myself would exploded that night when that happened because I had I had all these uh, uh, people that called me up like going, did Conor McGregor finally take a seminar from you? Well, I guess, <laughs> like I said, if, if, if I go, had he done that, he would have followed up with this, this, and this because there's certain things I've been teaching from close quarter combatants yeah. from the clinch that most people still have not done, but they fit within the realm of the rules. Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate of getting education. Understand the rules and know how to exploit them. And I know that big John McCarthy <laughs> knows that I'm that guy that uh, as they make up rules, you know, none of these, they be one owner of a promotion that has ever climbed in that cage. Did Dana White climb in the cage? Did the Fertitta brothers who owned UFC climb in that cage? Did, did uh, uh, Bob Byerwitz was another You're, owner of the cage? When you said that at the academy, I had him first. And I'm not trying to bring names because we don't cause drama, but him and a few students, me looked at me like, sounds like somebody needs to hear this. So I'm bringing this, and it's unfortunately, uh, my success in what I do, I mean, that's what I, um, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm blessed. Um, like BJ Fanatics, I do DVDs with them now and that. There's a lot... Take it out combative uh, situation when I talk about sports combative because a lot of, unfortunately, the combative community, like I belong to the Krav Maga also community, that's my third pedigree. When it comes to Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, maybe wrestling, because I only did it in high school, but I did a lot of catch, especially when I trained with Coach Eric Paulson. Helped me as I grew up, I know more. That's all like in my 30s when I got involved with CSW. And Ben Jones and all those and opened my eyes. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like it's like I said, I told the story, and I don't think Josh Barnett even knows this. My first introduction dealing with catch wrestling, I was at a seminar where Eric Paulson and Josh Barnett were there, and I rolled with Josh Barnett. I really hated my life that day. <laughs> I hated my fucking life that day. I was 30 years old, and I'm sitting here, Bell Barnett's like, let's roll. I'm like, you know what? What are my idols? I'm like, oh, man, he beat the shit out of me. And I'm like thinking so mad. I didn't have a position. I looked at him. I'm like, I'm about to walk off because this is not normal. And then after the roll, he slapped me back in the hand. He's like, good job, kid. I looked at him. I was like, I'm 30 years old. <laughs> I was already pissed. I was getting <laughs> snapped. You know, cow 
catch her till your chin hits the floor. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he doing this to me? I was like thinking, I'm like, what did I do wrong here? But that was it, getting into business, you yeah, know? No, I understand. 13 years ago. So I still was stubborn being who I am. I was like, all right, I'm gonna join this, uh, these folks, but goddamn, did I get a beating. But we kind of soothed it out and you know, he did his thing and that's fine. But the self-defense community is haunted and it bothers me, and I think you understand this, when even though I'm a black belt, let's say in Krav Maga or that side, other than everything I've done, I don't think they understand combat sports. And they have this vision that a combat sports person cannot take their chance. And I even told this, if you don't train wrestling, jujitsu, I say Muay Thai, you might learn a few things you can work with a drunk. You get one of those guys, they'll fuck you up. Yeah. Well, to, to play off of that, when you think about the martial arts world, when you talk about bow staffs, dub chucks, sickles. Yeah. Uh, Karate, folks. What, why look at that? When you walk down the sidewalk, I can't be walking down the sidewalk with a, with a bow staff. I no. can't be walking yeah, down. Somebody will call the cops on Exactly, without drawing. <laughs> we have somebody in the plaza that did that. But I didn't call the cops on him. I was laughing about it. At the same time, I can't walk down the sidewalk wearing a judo gi or a jiu-jitsu oh, gi. Again, without drawing attention to yourself. So when you can understand grappling ability, one of the greatest things I ever saw, again, was, was uh, at my freshman year at Arizona State. Uh, I actually began you in, in the story earlier of, of uh, little Billy Rosado. He was the 180 pounder at Arizona State, but he, at, at 180 pounds, he was underweight. Uh, at a collegiate weight level, they don't have the 180 pound class at all anymore. It's a 125. That's mm -hmm. the lightest weight class. But he competed internationally at the 105 and a half pound weight class. Well, he's out at, at, at a bar with a bunch of other, other wrestlers, and a fight breaks out. So you got this big old football player who's probably six foot three or more, probably 200, I don't know, let's say 270 to 280 pounds. He takes like a big old haymaker swing at little bit of his He ducks under, goes behind this big football player, locks him right out of the waist, belly to back, suplex, knocks him right out because he hits it's his done. head it's out done. of the asphalt. It's done. Game over. Yep. So no one else really gets hurt, I think. But then the football player's girlfriend pulls out a knife, stabbed he, he succeeds in one area, simply just gets stabbed into another. And I get that point. And I say that to my students, the only thing I have different, when I teach them, because I bring these elements, of course, when the firearm pulls open, knife. And here's the problem I have personally. I don't care what art. Once that bladed steel comes out and that firearm comes out, he's a firearm instructor. He teaches it to the level of military, to the level of self-defense. And he is blunt, and I laugh at him because people said to me what they said to him, you guys are not make money. I was like, because we're fucking honest? Because I tell people, I was like, right now, if that door got kicked in, somebody has a gun? That's over, yeah. yeah. Let's be honest, let's be honest. There's no training. Waves and machine, uh, gun out of both of them, what are we gonna do, all three of us? That's it. Yeah. What Fu and that they can say yeah. we can disarm? He said by the door, just pull the trigger. We're done. There's no wax out, wax out, no <laughs> magical. Blades no. come. And here's the thing. What I have a problem with, I do teach. If it didn't get displayed, you got your hands on it, that's fine. You can fight it. Yeah. But do understand, as the blade moves, it cuts. It cuts. And it's cutting me. <laughs> yeah. You got to realize, you're going to get cut. If you're, but, but knowing it by keeping 
arms out like this, where it's going to get cut here. That's you're not, exactly. You're not, not giving hit, these. Hit, 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 hit but let's be honest. There is a limitation to compared to when you start training in some combat sport, we know how to grab and dealing with a human moving and even with your fists and kicks like that. So taking back to what I'm trying to say and going back to the, the, the core of training, which I have an issue with the combative community in person, which... They did for longest time, and even I, I laugh when they say to him because he's a firearm instructor. They're like, "You're not gonna make money." I was like, "Yeah, because he's honest. He still has people. And I'm the same." I mean, I got lucky to get a deal with BJ Fanatic. They're like, "Okay, so this is the guy that teaches combative, but he's grappling." And I was like, "Yeah," and I did a whole DVD series on this. But again, talking to you, as I said, different than anything. I will never forget, and I think you would appreciate this. I was a bouncer, and I teach, tell these students a quite, uh, the story. I'm the bouncer that inside, not the outside, because I'm five foot seven. <laughs> I'm not the intimidating guy. Most of the big guys are not, they're just bodies. They have no, you know, some of yeah, the guys yeah. we have. I would never forget, I looked at this dude, and he had your typical five eight, five seven kind of wrestler look. I looked at his ear, I'm like, oh boy. Uh, this might be a trouble. When I looked at him, I just oh, saw the ear. Okay. He was minding his thing and he was holding a soda. I'm like, okay. Here comes the football players fucking with him. It's funny you said that. And now, you know, now when I was a kid, I would never forget they swung on him. All I saw him picking them up, bang their head on the wall, up there in the ceiling, and drop them at the side of the, the bar stool. Took him up. I looked at him, me being the guy, I was like, I need to take you out before they come in with their homies. Of course, they were okay, and he got out of it because the camera saved his life. Yeah. But going to the, again to what you said, once they get their hands on you, you're gonna go sky miles. And I would never. He picked. It was a big football, and he <laughs> banged them up for two minutes. He, I think he just scooped it to the side, bang, and just dropped them. I'm like, just wow. like, just even like today's seminar. I just taught two basic concepts. We all have body weight. And the biggest strongest muscles are our, our, our body, our, our legs. Knowing how to use our skeletal system, how to lift people up. So if I squat down, lock around toward down as I, as I stand back up, it's not my arms doing all the work. My arms are nothing more but holding mechanisms. It's my legs. Mm-hmm. So if you think no, about what you he, can... He did the you can correct leg lift in front of me. Yeah. It was amazing no. to watch. And me to me, it's like, that's what I'm saying. Everybody freaked out and I'm sitting mesmerized about such a good job but, done. But I, I always say that my freshman year at Arizona State... I had to work out with the 190 pounders because that, that's the weight class I came in for 190. But then I worked with the 177 pounders, 190 pounders, and the heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Heavyweight weight class, you know, now there's a, a ceiling that you cannot weigh over 285 pounds. That only came about somewhere, I'll say in the uh, 1980s, is that, that came into, into play. So the, the heavyweight that I had to work at at Arizona State, Big James Mitchell. Big James Mitchell weighed 420 pounds. So in the preseason, seven days a week, three times a day, I had to work out with James Mitchell along with other people. But I always tell people that I could throw Big James Mitchell. And when, I could, when you know that you can launch 420 pounds, when you finally get somebody that's somewhere in your, your weight class category, I can really make them fly. <laughs> Piece of cake. <laughs> so, taking off of sports, talk about growing up in cold water. Well, again, I'm not. A lot of my 
uh, family friends, they get upset because you always, they say, you, you always say, cold water. I go, that's where I lived at that time. Mm. My amateurist background would have been from Montrose, Michigan. Oh, okay. Well. So Montrose, Michigan is where, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm right on the border of two different school systems. The New Lothrop school system and the Montrose school system, but grew up on a farm. Seven other brothers and sisters, 120-acre farm. So when people say, well, you're one of them farm boys, oh, oh yeah. Yep. And farm boys are pretty darn strong because we're used to bailing hay. Oh, yeah, I know that. Pink pins, the whole nine yards, shovel this, shovel shit so, there. When I was telling you the story, I was like, my best backup, I, when, you know, when we're talking about people, you know, they say, oh, why people like this? I was like, honestly, I got a couple of good farm boys and me. I'm a brown dude from Middle East, you know, even though I'm Arab American. I was like, I'll pick up the phone and I call my farm boys. I don't give a damn what is the situation. All they say, we're coming. They'll come in with their four trucks and chuck us all the way to the city. All of in the city. But and that's, I, I, like I said, in heart, I even grew up like when my grandmother is an Austrian on a farm, you know? So I can understand that. But so when I was taking the question, it's like growing up in Coldwater, 1960s, 1970s, mm-hmm. what do you, how is that? Time compared to now. Well, I know that is a big di- different different time era. Yep. All, all together, I had uh, seven other brothers and sisters. I'm second on the total pole. Uh, so you learn real quick that you're you're sharing uh, everything. <laughs> I, I say I don't think I ever had my first. I don't remember when I ever had my first bedroom to myself because I, I always had a, a room that I had to share another uh, a room with a, with a, one of my other brothers. And then, uh, uh, you know, going from, from uh, that to, you know, going to Arizona State, again, I had to share a room with my older brother at, at the time. My brother Dave went to Arizona State, and I kind of followed its, in his footsteps. So, I mean, it just, you learn to share. But, you know, it, to me, growing up, there's, some, there's a lot of great things that I learned from that time era as well. I mean, yeah. the sharing, you never threw death away because on a farm, you simply had, you're going to re- you're going to refurbish this piece of machinery. Yep. It's going to, you have to use it again and again and again. You, you should be, know that, uh, repurpose it. You, know, you hear that more and more. Yep. Yeah, that has been done, done forever. But that going to uh, going to the Goodwill, going to the Salvation Army, because you're buying stuff to me. It's like, oh, even still to this day, I'll still go to a Goodwill and a Salvation Army. You'd be surprised how many nice, cool sports jackets. Sure, I could go buy a brand new suit. Because I, go, I just need a couple sports jackets. Boom, go get them. 15, 20 bucks, done. Sorry. It's just, it's the frugality of dance. I don't, I don't like to wear suits and ties. I don't, I'm not going to drop a lot of money. I, I have no problem until this day. Yeah. <laughs> he does a better job than me. <laughs> yeah. But there, there are different martial arts events that, that you're invited to that mm-hmm. you should show up in, in a sports yeah. jacket, a tie. Yeah. You can't just always show yeah, up. Yeah, he, he's on my ass about it. Sometimes he's on my like, oh. Well, my issue was sort of time because being a bodyguard, I did that a lot. Well, you can't, you can't show me. Maybe a, a tie could be used against you. I mean, no, no. My tie was all a coupon. I learned that from England. Yeah. When I, I learned my bodyguarding in England because it was judo based. Because think about it, um, you've been there in England, it's all the weather and it's all jacket. So that's why judo, combative judo was different. Mm-hmm. But when I learned my bodyguarding skills from there, um, all of our tips and ties were clip-ons. Yeah, because you do too. not want somebody to hold yeah, them down. Otherwise, it's a choking mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but, but even then, I you know more and more law enforcement gear is changing to more of a, an athletic type of a shoe. It is for foot pursuit. You got to realize it's got to be more stretchy to give give ability type of path because foot pursuits. It's tougher when you got body armor on. You try to do a foot pursuit, especially when you have a duty belt on, and then you might have a taser strapped to your leg, and and you know just mm-hmm. other stuff. That's that's all there. Uh, that's great that you talk about that because you know. I've, unfortunately, here's the thing. I'm the guy, I call myself the devil's advocate between the self-defense community and the combat sport. It's just rarely you get somebody in combat sports. Let me put it that way because I don't know why they call it that because they think people in combat sports don't know how to defend themselves, which is no. dumb. You there think some it. people are good competitors. Dumb. That's about it. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. But Flipping the page, if you think about it, not a lot of people teach it because this, this is why when people, when I was a combative instructor in the military, I was doing in Fort Leavenworth, I was teaching the MPs. It was so heavy. When I went in there, I got, uh, you know, when I looked around to see what's going on, and people don't understand, the clothing of the military did require grappling training. If you think about it, because, I mean, you've been there, you know how that goes, but... The argument that keeps going, and I want to give you the, you know, the way to speak on this. And for some reason, I hamper so hard in the self-defense community because I am almost, I am that self-defense instructor that's kind of anti-self-defense. The way, the way they well, go in. You, you question it. So, yes. So to me, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a car. I want to check underneath the hood. I want to kick the tires. Mm-hmm. I want to find out, is this actually a good car? Okay. Is this actually go. a good technique? Yeah. So my issue with them, this is me personality, because me personally, being a heavy grappling background from judo and wrestling, that's what I started, even though I have Muay Thai and I competed in it, I still, my grappling is my way to go, I think. I have an issue in believing their argument about, get on the ground and get up. I was like, how do you not understand when somebody's on top of you is not that easy? So okay. talking to you, let's forget about Dan Severn, the fighter. I'm talking about Dan Severn, the coach. Dan Severn, the husband. Dan Severn, the father. How do you feel when you hear in people in self-defense that says grappling is bullshit come in self-defense? I, I, I know your answer, but I want well, your... Well, yeah. forget, forget the fighter aspect of you. Being the coach, the father, and the husband. Yeah. We'll get there's There's techniques, tactics for... The competitor. But yes. now if you think about it, it's just everyday life. Okay, I have daughters. I have a wife. Uh, these are people that are vulnerable to being attacked, uh, whether they're assaulted on their feet mm-hmm. or if someone's going to try to take them down if, to be raped or some, you know, something of that nature. And, and I do teach like a women's self-defense class and I do teach a women's rape defense class. Absolutely. So what is like all on your feet? And the other one is down on the ground, sunny side up or over easy because, you know, rape is all going to happen one of a couple of different ways. So, again, you have to, you have to put them in a position. And I've had different ladies that come to class and you can just see that I could, now they're getting all kind of getting the heebie-jeebies because they have someone else that's getting in between their legs. I go, you need to get out of this class. You came here to, to try to understand what are some things you need to do to prevent from being, and it's only going to happen one of two, two different ways. So some people, as I say, you just need to leave, and there's other people that come in there, but, you know, if they can work with another female, they feel just a little bit more comfortable. And, and I, I get all that, but uh, 
there is a world of difference in man's strength versus a woman's strength. It's got it like you know, again, we live in this world, this PC world that I don't belong to anymore because there is no comparison between a woman's strength and a man's strength. You sure there are some women that have a lot more strength than what they are probably gifted with, but the reality is men are stronger than women. In you, for instance, you have worked with my students. Uh, you mean Atsuko, the Japanese student? Huh? Yes. And her husband. Yeah. She has been. They've, she and her husband been. They're both black belts under me, but they've been with me twelve, fifty, almost thirteen years. Okay. okay? Let's be honest. Atsuko, she's in her fifties. She even knows, and that's why I work with her grappling. I mean, what is her punch going to do to me? Or you? Be like almost like an insect Thank you. strike. And this is my issue with the combative community and even the crowd might not come in. Oh, yeah, you can do the elbows. I'm like, are you in? Are you fucking serious? I can, I can drop that phone here. I'm being serious. Because here is a fifth, somebody in her mid-50s. What is her punch to her size compared to me? And I'm a 43. You're talking about a buck that is in his 20s. Yeah. Going bulldozing against this woman. No, I think the the problem is they think they're short vision. They think that they can dictate how it's gonna happen. You know, they dictate that. I've heard that from people around you. Oh, of course, seminar, you know that. I will never go to the ground. Okay, cool, but that's not a choice. Right. I don't have that privilege of telling a guy attacking me, "Hey, in case I fall, let's wait a second till I get up and we continue this." Yeah, I'm gonna do my combative you know, get up, and, and then we're gonna get it a second. It doesn't happen. Up. Like you know, people always think of the best time situation to get attacked. My last time I got attacked with a knife was on the beach in Florida in its swim trunks. I was laughing yeah, by the way about that. Like, I don't know why I, he has my You know, I, I, I wasn't in my, you know, and, and shirts and stuff where I can use a belt to stop the bleeding and all the fancy stuff that they teach in, in these self-defense schools. I'm in swim trunks on the beach with nothing but flip-flops. So, okay, what do you do now? And, and they always hear the argument, I will never go down. And it's the new generation, I feel like they're watching MMA and they're learning two, three things. I watched a guy that tried to put a chokehold on a guy that took 45 minutes. The, sh the, the people were recording, they called the cops, and he still had a chokehold. This on is him. a real they story. With him. It they was the longest like, video I've seen, 45 minutes. They were, like, they were like, you should let go of him, and he had a chokehold on him. And I'm like, how do you have a chokehold on him for 45 minutes? Like, the cops showed up, and you still have a chokehold on the guy. Obviously, and, and he, was, trying, he was trying to actually choke him. You, you never took the seminar from Dan Severn. <laughs> how, how do you realize flip flops? <laughs> as a martial arts to be, you know, especially if you had both flip flops. Now, exactly. again, I'd be totally facetious right now, but, yeah, but, it's, but it's you'd funny be surprised. To they, they learn a thing or two and they see it on TV and they try to implement it yeah. and they try to dictate the rules. So, like, I, I have guys that show up to my classes that say, I will never get in a fist fight. I have a yeah. gun for a reason. I'm like, okay, what happens if a guy shows up? But you're trained as well. Face, and then now you're, you it's, can't draw your gun. What happens? Yeah, it's the bad person. That only knows what things are going to go down. Exactly. You, everyone else walks into an environment. You're not really anticipating this. Now, there are different times when you go into an environment. You, you might just pick up like uh, a bit of bad the best, place or something like that. You know, like the that. best one, and I give credit to one of our black belts in our jiu-jitsu community. I highly respect him, uh, Jason Bircher. He literally, he sees me. He laughs because... I belong to the jiu-jitsu community, but I'm in a combative community. So, you know, it's almost like a bipolar <laughs> relationship. But I'm hard in the combative community because, you know, hard test their stuff. And, of course, they're like, well, how are you going to hard test eye gouging and ball grabbing? I'm like, y'all are just crazy. You just, uh, whose balls are you going to grab when he's just plunging your face and exactly. banging your head on the floor? This stuff doesn't work. Right. Let's please. I mean, I'm a drunk guy all night long. If it's, he's just like... 
So he said to me, and I would never forget, he said, Fraz, and I will credit, he's like, self-defense people work on concept. Okay? But he said, us, we try our shit. We test it. Between wrestling, jujitsu, and we test it. We're like, oh shit, this didn't work when I got this 25-year-old buck pinning me to the wall, and I'm punching him, and I'm like, Okay, this is not moving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but there's also an add element of of an adrenaline dope. Oh, add that crazy part, and then add to it if a weapon got displayed, and this just drives me insane to this day. I do understand. Yes, the combat sport community to understand when things are like this get displayed. Total different animal. I just said somebody walked in with a gun now. <laughs> what am I gonna do? Our goose is cooked. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, but. There's was my issue with the combative self-defense people. They don't say that honestly. Uh, it, well, there's a lot of people in the martial arts world that they're looking at their paydays. <laughs> and they want to keep the paydays going. Sometimes you can't, you, you can't please everyone. You can't give everyone something to work with. I mean, there are some people who's kind of like going, you best be at your best behavior and try not to go into bad neighborhoods. <laughs> And, uh, you know, mind your P's and Q's and always be aware. And you better live in a very gated community and things of that nature. But and there are some people that, that live that, that type of lifestyle. But, uh, you know, most of us have to go to work on a daily basis. And we have to interact with people that eh, maybe we don't care for them as much. But, you know, they're part of the workforce and they're, they're going to be around us. No, so let's play devil advocate. Do you yeah. think it's the people mentality that's forcing this, let's call it bullshit teaching? Because the people are so washed up, they don't want to attend training for eight years. They don't oh, want to train Jesus for 10 Christ, years. They want to attend the seminar for a weekend with you or Philos or, you know, they want to learn guns from me. And then they never show up again and they think they're yeah. like, I, I learned something. They walk I, away with that certificate. They put up, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I, I learned something. I don't need to train for 10 years. So do you think it's the washed up mentality that every no child left behind? They just want to get that certification and think in their head they're convinced yeah. and if you start teaching real stuff they don't want to learn it because it takes too long well obviously you Jeb, already know that if you really want to know a technique or tactic you have to train it yeah and if you want to stay relevant on going training as well be it about the wacky world of professional say I've been hurt far worse and my professional wrestling career that I have been in all of my cage fights combined. And then people are going to say, well, how is that possible? What is real and what is not? But the reality is, is that when you're involved in like professional wrestling, you start to move up in this hierarchy where mm -hmm. yeah, you become more veteran. You start to relax a little bit more. You're not doing as much training as, you, as much as you once did. And... Maybe all you really do is simply just show it up and do it an occasional match, but you're not doing any training whatsoever, so your game is off. And that's how people get hurt. That's how people's careers come to an end when you think you can still pull off a move. Because everyone yeah. wants to look great in a match and like going, you know, Omar, we're going to climb up to the top rope 
and I'm gonna pick you on up, and we're gonna, I'm gonna jump off and do a body splash on the I will tell you to see that if it's gonna go. happen to you. I'm busy today. <laughs> hey. I'm out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> hey. the he watches more, watches that, dude, so much. I would pay to see that. Yeah, happen. Remember to have a trip yeah. coming up? Yeah. I'll be up to the country, whatever day that is. <laughs> it, 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 but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wow, that would look really cool, but can Dad actually pull that off? Because Without if, killing me. If a dad doesn't pull this off, I mean, it could be the end of your career. Yeah. It could be the end of your life. And there are some professional wrestlers where things have gone wrong. Your and era of this career has... That have happened in the era, the rising of the attitude era. That has happened a few times. Well, well that, but that was well, something that we talked about even before even doing this, uh, the, the podcast here. Yes. The most viewed combat match... In history is Dodd Fry versus Takiyama. That corner fight. So when they just what, punched what, that, yep. It's a pride, I think, one of the, the it's a pride fight. Yep. But whenever he says fight, they literally, they're, they're, they're coming towards each other and they start throwing punches from the distance to where they get right, where each of them have Clinch. a collar tie. Yep. They have a collar tie and they're punching each other in the face just like this. It's almost like a game of chicken. It's kind of like I'm punching you in the face. It looks like, you, if you, you think about it, it's almost like pro wrestling in a corner when they crap. And, yes. Yeah, but, but they, they, they really did it. For real. <laughs> it's kind of like I'll punch you in the face. Do you give up? No, I'm going to keep punching you in the face. Do you give up? Now, who won? The crowd actually won that match because the crowd seen something that I guarantee they will never see again. No. And Nobody. Well, I will I, never see anybody you, do that again. You might see some people re-mimic that in professional wrestling, but yes. never in a cage fight because the toll that it took on both people. Now, the reason for telling a story like this was both Don Fry and Takiyama also had professional wrestling backgrounds as well. Yep. And Takiyama... After that fight, and, and up to like little over somewhere that two year, maybe just over two years ago, realm, Takiyama was involved in a professional match in a very routine uh, technique known as a sunset flip. Very basic routine. Went array. Went wrong. And the guy fell backwards, basically breaking Takiyama's neck. Yeah. And he's now a, a quadriplegic. Life. I saw the videos of Don Fry uh, visiting him, and it yes. brought me to tears, to be yeah. honest with you. To see, because I'm a fan of that era, and just watching, and I just see Don hugging him. Well, you see the two warriors. Yeah, there yeah, literally. The warriors of my generation, and just seeing Don, you know, hugging him and just kissing him on the head, and I'm like, my God. It, yeah. It just takes. And to be honest with you, to take it. To that time, even forward, let's say when Pro Wilson comes in, which gets a lot of hound, but it has a different respect now than it did that time, to be honest with you. Agreed. And I, I truly believe you are, maybe people are like, oh, he's being a fanboy, but I'm being honest. What you've done in the UFC have made people like, okay. They kind of lifted an eye on Pro Wrestling, but you were not... As active as then after that, then you, when you hit that uh, WWF Attitude Era, yes. when you made your debut. So, saying that to our crowd, I mean, some of the, I got a bunch of our fans are now in the, the time of they coming in with pro wrestling as it is now more extravagant than it is. Um, 
PC more than it ever been. Let's be honest. Okay. <laughs> you know, other than AEW, I gotta give them credit. They're bringing that energy there in that time, which I am preferring them now right now. Well, I got a couple of WWE friends in there. They're gonna get mad at me at this, but hey, I'm honest. You know, but, your but product the, is being bullshit. The ratings are proving it, though. That's my point. I got a couple of friends that even in the, they're the ones that does talent management, and they were like, "You watching this shit?" I was like, "Hey, man." I've been watching your stuff and I've been turning it off. It's been irritating me. So let's be honest. You know, yeah, I mean, the, the, the you, people are speaking. If they, they, if they wish to watch your product, they watch some. There we go. Them. I mean, it's, you've done. You've done. You brought Brian Cage. You brought a couple of people. You've, you've been. You and Don have been honest about your opinion. Prefer So taking it to that time, that attitude era, when you debuted, in my opinion, you were the first one to introduce the double leg takedown, which is the spear. When you <laughs> took Goldberg. off, yeah, Black, <laughs> Here yeah. we go. Before Bill Goldberg and Lesnar or Roman Reigns, who does the spear right now, I will never forget the day when you walked in recorded behind you screaming, and you just, bla I was in attendance in St. Louis. You double leg blasted uh, Steve Blackman. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I just watched, I'm like, I know what a double leg takedown is, but goddamn, you just flew across that ring with him. Yeah. Was that? But, but there's ways of understanding the rig and how to utilize it because yeah. you know like with a lot of people i'll let them start to push me backwards and as they push me backwards i'll spin around just before we get to the ropes and i'll jab them into the ropes knowing that the ropes are like rubber bands i push them out, out knowing that what goes out is eventually going to come right back in as i start to feel this little bit of come right back in i launch an incredible belly to belly to where <laughs> I can launch, I don't care how big they are, knowing that as I launch them, they're scared. They're like going, well, how are you going to throw me straight over your head or this? No, I go, I'm going to do a normal, safest one to where literally as I launch you, you're going to be, you're going to be like catapulted across this and you're going to just go to cartwheel. You can actually go cartwheel and you can go right out of the ring, which looks pretty cool. And you figure you're on one side, guy throws you, he just sees you just spin mm -hmm. the spiral right out of the ring altogether. But that takedown that you did... But, but you can do the same you thing when you shoot them head and you collide because yeah. as you hit them, you... Okay. I try to teach them to where it looks great, but again, it's in the magical, mystical world okay. of compressors to where I'm you were, I, I don't know. I was in attendance and I'm like, because I didn't, that was, you just walked in and you beat the hell out of three, four people. You walked in, I'm like, Holy cow, that's that severed. That's why you yeah. walked in as a beating. And here's your cornet holding your belt and screaming in the background, which I want to get into in a second. But did you plan that double leg spear or you just pulled well, it off? Those are things that I knew I was going to be get good at. You you might be in a match. Can't can't script everything else. Yeah, you have, absolutely. To, have a, you have to have a general idea. Typically, when you're working for a major company like, like a WWE, they're looking for you to fill a certain window of time. They want a certain outcome because the monthly pay-per-views are all based upon you moving forward, you winning matches, and winning matches in a certain way so that we can sell more pay-per-views at the mm -hmm. end of the month. And we have to have multiple storylines going because if something happens in, in one of your matches and you get hurt, you're out of that company pay-per-view, but the other four or five storylines are still going to move forward, and hopefully we'll come up with a, a new match for whoever yeah. your, your your partner was going to be in the match. So again, the, the, it is it's a very unique profession. It's a very unique, uh, ongoing 
I call it the soap opera. Soap yeah, opera. I mean, that's you what it your, is. You, you know. got your daily, or I should say your weekly shows that lead up to the monthly pay-per-view to see the big, mm-hmm. the big match, and then by the following the week, now you have new storylines that are coming up. You have tag teams that they might have got had some type of a, a spat there finally, and now they're into, oh, you suck. And, oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're no longer tag teams. Yeah. We have other people where uh, you might have been uh, attacking one person after match. I run in and all of a sudden, you know, scare you off with the chair or something like that. And now I unite with uh, uh, with Omar here. And now we want to take on you and somebody else to where we get it's tag team matches. So you got professional wrestling is that product that there's something in it for everyone. Whether you like watching midgets or women's oh, or God, tag teams or singles or, or whatever it be, but you've seen it all. When yeah, it comes speaking to, of it, it, timing in that era, Jim Cornette speaks yes. highly of you. How is it working with Jim? Jim Cornette, a, a complete professional, but he's very, he's very passionate oh, he about the product. Yep. He win when Jim Cornette starts talking professionally, you could start to see the child that fell in love with it so many decades ago. He's very passionate about the sport. He wants to make sense out of the sport. And there's a lot of people that were never professional wrestlers, but somehow they're on the creative team now. Yes, and this is what we're suffering these days yeah. with the WWE, in my opinion. I mean, I got my son grew up on it, and now he looks at me like, he literally took, I sit with my son, 17 years old now, and I'm like, oh my God, this reminds me of the WWE Federation, War Wrestling Federation time when it got corny with the, you know, the Papa Shungos and all that. I'm sitting here, and I was like, hey, you want to watch my dinner? No, Dad. I'm like, what happened? He's like, I'll wait for Wednesday for AEW. Yeah. Well, and watching AEW now, I, mean, I want to get your opinion. You being part of the Attitude Era, at the beginning of the Attitude Era, you were beginning because you were brought in as like, holy cow, here comes a cage fighter. That's how they build you, the ultimate fighter, coming in, beating the hell out of the pro wrestlers that time. Yeah, just a, a new twist yes. to the same old saga. You didn't talk. Before. You had your wrist wrapped, that's it. You had your gray shirt and you got your sweat, sweat on. Sweaty out to it there. <laughs> exactly. But the other cool thing. You put your mouth guard on and you I just went and beat the shit out of people. No one else was doing that. I, I get I just No one else was doing it that time. Take that water bottle, spritz some water, put your mouthpiece in, and you spit that water yep. right on out, you know? Hey, I remember that. And to me, being a martial artist and remembering combat sports that time, I'm like Okay, this is kind of interesting. Then, of course, the Ken Shamrocks came in, and then we had the Goldbergs, and we had that. But talking to you right now, when you look at the product right now, I know it's kind of different realm than when we were talking about MMA and all this. When you look at the product right now, your opinion, being involved in the big, what is the era that changed pro wrestling? Because you were part of the WWF attitude era. Mm-hmm. We had WCW going on with the NWO time, and it was that collision that time. And before Goldberg popped up. Yeah. I think that it was a an excellent time to be involved in professional wrestling, being on the WWF roster because at that time WCW was kicking Vince's butt, yes. WWF's butt on a weekly rating basis. So WWF, this attitude era, they were pushing the envelope. 
WCW had Bill Goldberg. WWF had uh, had uh, Bob uh, whatever. No, they, they, they had they had the anti tour guy had. Yeah, they had weird guys at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, no I was like, it was a terrible time in that business. But, but it was it was you know. But they were pushing the envelope more and more to do a little bit more riskier type of, of products. So I mean, I I, th I actually enjoyed for the most part what I was doing. They were used to be quite strong in the beginning, but then there came a point where it's like, oh, you know, we got no control over this guy. Is that what really happened with well, you? Well, again, this is just me speculating. For example, if I, have, if I got no control, you can work for anybody. What if we put a strap on you that means something in our WWE? E people, WWF people, and all of a sudden you work for another company, and they beat you. That's a risk with that strap. Yeah. So, I think that might have been one of the things that held the back. From, used to be strong. Is kind of going. We can't put this guy in because we got no control over him. I'm. I'm. I can work for anybody. Well, you I'm had not. a comment. Two things actually. It was kind of between the two between MMA. UFC and WWF, which I want to ask you about. We talked about, so let's put this in the podcast. Let's stick to WWF for now before we go back to UFC. There was a moment, in which is the Royal Rumble. Oh, yes. Oh. Of you walking in, and I remember seeing you. like, how is this going to play out? But I heard there were speculations that time that they didn't know what you were going to do. Well, what, what was happening was, okay, first off, the, we talked about it a little bit earlier. As a professional wrestler, yes. they, they kind of revamp you yep, and maybe give you a new costume, give you a new storyline. So they were looking at revamping me. I was basically, as Dan said before, I was basically a no-nonsense, you know, kind of kind of a badass type of a person. You know, but I never cut no promos, didn't no. Really talk or anything like that. I just basically did what, did what I did. So now they're doing it, looking at something like repackaging me. Now they want to put 666 across the forehead. They want... Mark of the Beast. They want to make me like an Undertaker disciple. So as they start pitching me these ideas... Is that when he was going through the whole satanic uh, vision yes, that yes, time? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, and literally as, as this creative team is pitching me this, I put up my hands like a T. I make the little whistle noise like, time out, guys. Not going to happen. Mm. I live in small town USA. I'm not going to have any repercussions against my family, nor against my businesses, nor against me. Because before ever getting involved in professional wrestling, I went to a couple shows to watch it. I was watching the crowd more than I was watching the product. I watched it with the product that they're watching, but I'm watching the interaction. Professional wrestling does prey upon a lot of special needs organizations. Mm. That a lot of these special needs organizations, it, it, it's a wonderful what they do for them, but at the same token, can a lot of these special needs people, can they differentiate from what is real and what is not? Back at that time, they didn't differentiate. No, no, you're, you're exactly right. So again, that that's time, I remember. It I, was... Time out, not going to do this. 
So now I have like one of these road agents. They're like, well, you know, Dan, we could start using you poorly. I got by going, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we could start having you lose matches. I go, oh, really? Where does it say anywhere on my contract? I have to lose to anybody. What if I walk into your magical, mystical world of fantasy, and I turn fantasy into reality? Which one of your so-called stars has got to stand a chance with me? But that's good. The Royal Rumble's coming up. So now, my, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay. So this company is looking to X-Day yes. me. So it's kind of going, now I can make a phone call over to Eric Bischoff, WCW, Ted Turner, and go, you know, I'm about to enter this Royal Rumble. I already know that I might go out there as number whatever, seven, eight, or nine. I go out there, and I'm booted back out around number 13, 14, or 15. You know, just, just, just if you know that when this guy goes out, I basically default because it's all part of the show. I go, What's it worth to you guys, WCW, Ted Turner, Eric Bischoff, what's it worth to you guys so that when it's time for me to exit the ring, I now turn fantasy to reality. into reality, knowing that this is live. Yep. It's a live pay-per-view. In an arena that people watch, people are going to be thinking, it's all part of the show. Yep. And I start shit-canning <laughs> opponent <laughs> after opponent now waiting every 90 seconds for fresh meat to come yep. right in. Now, eventually, just by sheer numbers, they might send two, three guys at a time to get me out of the ring. So if they, they got me out of the ring, but have they got me out of the arena yet? No, yep. so they haven't. So I actually think that what's it worth to Ted Turner, Eric Bischoff, what's it worth to your WCW organization for me to wreak havoc into a, a company for one night. I easily could have made a million or two for one night. That at time, how hungry they were and for the win that, I am pretty yeah. sure. Well, but but the sheer fact that, that uh, they basically agreed to my terms, okay. they're just going to pay me out, out. So that was happening. And I no longer had to show up for work. So it's kind of like the, the last few months of my, my uh, career, it's kind of like going paychecks. Coming. I kind of yeah, wonder yeah, about yeah, that because I was in Greensboro, North Carolina that time. Uh -huh. There's a story, I don't know, I remember I shared with you on the phone we were talking, but I'll bring this to the crowd. I was my brother that time, and my brother's younger than me, he's like four years younger than me, and he was of the generation that saw the Ken Shamrock that didn't see the dad severing as me. We were at the hotel. Eh, it I, is, I, I, mean, won't, I won't hold that against your brother. Then. Okay, <laughs> yeah. You got that around? So... <laughs> He saw Ken Shamrock got excited and came just blah, 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 and ignored him. And I'm like, damn. I was just sitting at the bar. Here you come. And I was like, hey, man, Dan is here. He's like, he kind of stared at me like, <laughs> you know, I was like, all right. And you will remember, of course, you got so fast. I go in and I drag my fat ass brother with me. Get your ass here. Let's go talk to Dan. You, I would never. I was like, Mr. Severin. You know, we're fans, and I know you were in Greensboro that time. It was the King of the Ring that time. It was a rock and Undertaker. I don't know if you would utilize. I remember seeing you, but I wasn't that much of a time for you to give you. I think that was during the time you might be going out. During okay. that time. All right. Ken has his own thing going on with the, the whole corporation, whatever crap going on. But anyway, 
And I said, hey, check this out. So I would talk to you. And I was like, I bet you will talk to us. You gave us 15 minutes, man. And to me, it was like, I didn't have to ask for an autograph on myself. My brother was looking at me. I was like, man, he's really cool. He's not the asshole I see on TV because he was well, the character. I portray a character. But, but you I, I were never talking. You just came in as an assassin, annihilated yes. everybody, and walked off. And Ken, for some reason, that time they were billing him as yes. the ultimate fighter, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I was never a fan. I'll, just, I'll be honest with you, I've never been a the fan. The most dangerous man in yes. the world. Yes, I yes. remember that. And I was just like zero about it. And my brother was just like a fanboy running in, getting his back, and he just blew him out. And he was like, damn. I was like, I bet you that server will do that. And that was like, that was, God, I think 1999. Yeah. It, it right. has to be around that time. It was Greensboro, North Carolina. I would never forget that. So that's kind of how you stand tall in front of those guys during that time. Well, but at the same token, I, I've always, when I was working for the WWF at the time, I would go out a couple hours before the show starts because in the, the back of the building where all the wrestlers were are driving and stuff like that, they would come on in, they'd go on out, but they would always, they'd always have it barricaded off. But a lot of fans would come out there and to just beat the wrestlers. Mm -hmm. So I would go out there and I would shake hands. I would, you always I would, I would, I would tell some that. stories and stuff like that. And they're like going, wow, that's so cool that you're out there. They're like going, well, can you, you never portrayed your character yeah. outside during that time. No, so no, that was no, different. No. So, but, but, but they're, they're meeting dance of the real person. Yes. And, and they're like, well, that's so cool that you do. Well, why doesn't, they're asking, well, why doesn't some of the other people go, I go, I can't speak for them. Okay. And they're like, well, but they're like, why are you doing it? I go, well, who pays my bills? Or they're like, Vince McMahon. I go, really? I go, who pays my bills? If you guys didn't show up here today to buy a ticket or something like that, so ultimately I go, you guys are paying my salary for what I've received here. So I appreciate that. So I'm out here thanking you by interacting with you, talking to you, answering some questions. And they thought, like, that's so cool. But then they would say, can you... Can you go get so and so this? I go, no, no, no. I go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no messenger boy for nobody else. I go, if they want to come out and speak, that's on them. Yeah. I go, I, I understand what this industry is all about. Yeah. And I, I, I want to know that there's, there's two parts of Dan Severn. Yeah, sure, there's always going to be Dan Severn, the serious competitor, but there's going to be the laid back Dan Severn that you're going to beat, you know, that is not going to be out there put on the, the showmanship type aspect. Well, that makes sense. And and even we got to things because we got to yeah. keep it under two hours. Yeah. yeah. So what are you doing nowadays anyway? I still do a lot of things. I still travel all around the country doing seminars, doing clinics. This is what I like to do. I my, Still my first love is teaching average wrestling, whether it's on a junior high level, high school level, collegiate level, but then I'm also versed in freestyle wrestling, rock and roll wrestling. I'm also involved into... Uh, law enforcement corrections, air marshal, border patrol, military. I have an actual uh, certified certified ground combatants program. But then I teach mixed martial arts. I teach submission grappling. I teach gi non gi applications. I've done you know cell extractions. They think that that towards I go I go. I go I've never been any of the uh, most of the people. That I, I've never been. I've not worked in corrections. I've not done this or that, but it's kind of going, but show me. I've had a lot of people that are about this industry and they will simply bring me in because they look at me as a subject expert. I go, put me in the uniform. Put me in the mm -hmm. gear so I understand a little bit more. Like military. I have never been in the military, 
but they, they loved some stuff. I come up by, by the time I put the rucksack on, I got the weapon strap. I'm very creative as to teach things from being in the gear and trying to move around what limitations I may have. That makes sense. So what about toxic masculinity? Well, I mean, that, that's just a podcast that Don, <laughs> Don Fry and I How much hate do you guys get on that name? I'm just curious. You, you know, it, it was it, it was Don that came up with the name toxic masculinity. I'm, I'm kind of like Don's whooping boy. Uh, on the show because if, if, I always tell people that if you ever watch the movie Grumpier Old Man yes. Don Fry is Walter Matthau and I'm like the Phoenix under characters because it's uh, Don has no uh, no uh, sensory whatsoever oh, yeah. I, 